Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome. This is Peter Alcher from the Employment Committee. We're delighted you're here to learn uh, from our guest, Dr. Wedler. He has lots of things to talk to us about. Before we do that, I'd like to introduce my co-host. Introduce yourself, Ms. Co-host. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is Melanie Sanoe in Phoenix. I'm a part of the Employment Committee with Peter. Very sorry about the late start, but it wouldn't be convention without a technical difficulty. But we are here with Dr. Wedler. I do want to open up with this opening CEU code. So the opening CEU code is 17751. And to repeat that, it's one, seven, seven, five, one. And we'll give the closing one at the end. Thanks, Mel. And I want to thank all those folks who have co-sponsored this event, which I think is Next Gen. I think it's Blind Pride. I think it's the, the uh, Ivy folks and, of course, the Employment Committee. And so we're delighted you're all. Uh, thanks for the co-sponsoring. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Hobie Wedler. Hobie, say hi. Peter and Mel, what an honor it is to join you. Uh, this is my uh, my first uh, ACB convention and my first presentation at an ACB convention. So I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. And uh, I want to thank you both in advance for your will. Well, I want to thank you not in advance for your willingness to interview me. And uh, thank you in advance for inviting me to this session. We're delighted to have you. And the plan, uh, basically, as I envision this, is we're going to interview Hobie for about, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes. If you have any questions, please raise your hand, and at 20 or 25 minutes, we'll pause the interview, and we'll try to get your questions answered. When your name is called, please unmute yourself, give your name, where you're from, and then as brief a question as you can, manage it. So, Hobie, our first question to you is, tell us about yourself. (laughs) That's a great question, Peter. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so uh, as I was introduced, I am am Hobie Wedler, 34 years old, and I have been completely blind since birth. So never had an eyesight, but I've had parents who have just been so incredible and such a gift to me and my sighted brother, by the way, in terms of their ability to hold very high expectations of us and to really give us responsibility for our own lives and and give us that that opportunity to just take our lives, you know, take control of our lives and take responsibility for what we do and, and how they turned out. You know, I remember both of my parents talking to me saying at a very young age, hey, this is your life to live. And, you know, you need to take responsibility so that when you succeed, you get all the credit. And when maybe things don't work out, you need to be able to take some of the blame for that. And, you know, so often I see students going through the education system who are blind or visually impaired, where they rely a lot on -on one-on-one aids or teachers with visually impaired or this sort of thing. So it's sort of hard for them to necessarily take responsibility for what happens. And uh, it's easy to sort of blame other people if something doesn't happen to their satisfaction. And what was great for me growing up with my parents and my family is that I was their son, Hobie Wedler, who happened to be blind. I was not Hobie Wedler, their blind son. And there's a big distinction and differentiation there. The other thing that, that happened very early in my life, I think it was about 12 hours old, 
was that when I was born and my parents had no idea I would have any issues with my eyes. When I was born, they, they got really worried. Oh no, is he ever going to be able to see? Doctors started looking into it saying, no, he probably will never be able to see. He's not responding to light. Oh my gosh, what do we do? So my mom decided that she was going to call her really good friend, her best friend from college um, and tell her that I was born and that things were, you know, everything went well, but that I was going to be blind for my whole life. Um, she got on the phone and, and the friend's name is Barb, by the way. And she talked to Barb's husband, Steve, at first. And all my mom's friend could hear is, is uh, Barb's husband saying, oh, no. Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, this is just such tragic news. And then Barb, being the person she is, grabbed the phone right from, from her husband and said, what? What's going on? I need to know about this. And my mom relayed that, yeah, he's born, he's healthy, he's happy, but I don't know, Barb, he's blind. And they say he's not going to be able to, you know, see again. And Barb's response to that was, oh, blind, thank God. Based on the way you were talking and the way Steve was reacting, I thought he might be dead. Blind we can deal with. And I just thought that was such a cool thing. And I'll tell you a story. And I think a lot of us have this in common. When there is a role model who we can look up to who happens to be blind, we tend to not think of it as a big deal. And my mom had forgotten this, that Barb's father's best friend was a professor in psychology who happened to be blind. And she grew up with him over at their house, you know, a few nights a week. So blindness to her really was not a big deal. And that set my parents on a brilliant trajectory to say, okay, you're right. This really isn't a big deal. I was very lucky as well because my mom was uh, looking for, for a new career uh, after teaching in the classroom at, you know, as a seventh grade math and science instructor, really not liking the discipline side of that at all when I was born. And she was kind of hinting at the idea of going back to receive her master's degree in special education. And when I was born blind, she said, yeah, I think that's what I want to do. So she, she did that. And then she found out that she could study, you know, being a teacher of the visually impaired specifically and being an orientation mobility specialist and got really excited about that. So worked as I was growing up for about 25 years for the Sonoma County Office of, Office of Education as a teacher of the visually impaired O&M specialist. So having someone like that you know, under the same roof uh, with, a, with a growing blind person was really special and, and a real experience. And boy, I didn't get away with anything, tell you that, um, <laughs> which, is, which is a good thing. I, uh, I was born and raised in Petaluma, California, which is at the very tip of Sonoma, the southern end of Sonoma County, the very, very southern end of the wine region that we might think of when we hear about Napa and Sonoma. I went off to uh, undergraduate and graduate school at the University of California, Davis, which is about 70 miles east of Petaluma. And then because I, I love the hometown where I grew up so much, I boomeranged right back to Petaluma to start my business upon completing graduate school. Before you go any further, talk about your education, especially your uh, college education. My understanding is that you were uh, a, a chemist. I, yes, indeed. I uh, like many others, uh, oftentimes, I think a high school instructor who's really good and really passionate can really shape our careers and uh, help us decide kind of where we want to go after high school. And I had that experience in chemistry. It was a kind of unique experience, though, because the instructor who I had was really passionate. And this is what, what motivated me to study chemistry was her excitement for the subject. We would come in, we would sit down. 
And she would say, no, chemistry is everything around us. We live it. We breathe it. It's the air we breathe. It's how our body processes the food that we eat, the water we drink. It's all chemistry. You all should think about studying this further. And I loved this class. I loved what she had to say. I loved her instruction style. I mean, just an incredible person, incredible teacher. And I was maybe the only one in that class who really wanted to go on and pursue a degree in chemistry at the college level. So I, I approached her. This is what she would say during, during class meetings. And then when I would approach her, you know, outside of the class, typical classroom setting, I would, you know, I, I would say to her, hey, I really do want to take your advice and study chemistry. And she would say, oh, Hobie, I don't know how that's going to work. I, chemistry is just such a visual science. I really don't know if that's such a good idea for you to pursue a, a degree in chemistry. I think it's going to be a lot harder than it, than it seems, than it's worth. And I thought, oh man, this is really too bad. That's, you've inspired me to study chemistry, but now you don't necessarily think I can do it. That was kind of a letdown. So I said, I've got to convince her that teaching me chemistry and that me studying chemistry is the right thing to do and is not a big deal and is not going to be a problem. And I thought, now what can I tell her that's going to get her motivated and excited to, to support me and understand that? And I figured it out. I remember it vividly to this day. It was the second week of the second semester of my junior year of high school in honors chemistry. And I went into her room early in the morning before any students arrived. And I said, you know, I understand that you think chemistry is quite visual and um, you think it's going to be hard for me to study chemistry. And I get that. But I have to share with you that nobody can see atoms. You can't see them. I can't see them. Chemistry, therefore, is really a cerebral science where we might use our eyesight to see particular chemical reactions occur and color changes and whether a gas has been effervesced or any of these sorts of things. But beyond that, what we can see is such a small range in the grand scheme of things of what happens in chemistry. We can't see any difference when we do a, a reaction of organic chemicals, typically, so we use instruments that can see for us called nuclear magnetic resonance uh, instruments, which literally use radio waves to look at what's in a flask and what, what was produced in a chemical reaction. Nobody's using eyesight there. Rather, we're all using an instrument. And I apologize if I sniffle at all. My allergies are just killing me today. We use other ways of looking at samples. And that really inspired me. I uh, went on to the University of California, Davis as an undergraduate student. And by the way, the instructor from high school was immediately became a total ally and still is a dear friend and staunch supporter to this day. So she's incredible. Um, I did go on to UC Davis and got a degree in chemistry, figured out how to work with uh, lab assistants to get laboratory exercises done and found just an amazing assistant and reader who I worked with actually from uh, my freshman year of college all the way through pretty much to the end of graduate school. So she became a total supporter and, and just a really close friend as well. Uh, she actually worked for the Office of Disability Resources at Davis and then uh, was employed by them, actually contracted with them. And I ended up, you know, working with her, of course, through the University, the Student Disability Center and uh, and then, you know, funding her a bit on my own as well. And that was that was really incredible. Chemistry was was totally doable. Now, I didn't know, uh, so at this point, sort of middle end of my undergraduate tenure, I knew that I was a nerd and I wanted to teach at the college level, a college or university level. I realized and, and totally still have this, that I have the heart of a teacher. And by that, I don't mean that, um, 
you know, I like to just know more than other people and explain things and sound like a know-it-all, right? I like to get people excited about things that maybe they didn't know they were excited about before. And that's where I say I have the heart of a teacher. And I used that and I really wanted to teach something at the college level. And I thought it might be chemistry, but I wasn't sure as a blunt. And if you want to teach at the college level, you got to go to grad school. And graduate school usually involves a lot of research. I didn't know how, as a blind person, I was going to do research without having an assistant that I hired to work with me in the lab, you know, 12, 16 hours a day. Graduate school is long hours. And I I really do like to do things independently with, with minimal sighted assistance as much as I can. And I think a lot of you can relate to that. Because of that, and because I also have a deep sort of passion that I've always had for history, I got a degree in United States history. So organic chemist meets United States historian. And uh, what do you get? Well, I ended up meeting, uh, by the way, my degree is in 20th century conspiracy theory history. So looking at a lot of the conspiracy theories that came about, particularly after World War II. So if you want to talk about, uh, I don't know, brewing beer or uh, the Kennedy assassination, we can talk all day. But really, you know, I ended up meeting an amazing person who had become my graduate advisor who studied studies computational chemistry at Davis. All of the organic chemistry that he does is computational, done on the computer. And he encouraged me to try, you know, studying in his group, doing some research projects while an undergraduate student. One thing led to another, we realized that we were able to make some of what we do in the lab accessible to me. And uh, yeah, this would work as a, as, you know, for me to study as a graduate student. So I, I was kind of thinking about getting my master's. I wasn't sure. He encouraged me to apply to the doctoral program. And I said, well, sure, let me, let me give this a try. I applied, I got in, and I ended up working in his group as a, a PhD chemist for about five years, five and a half years uh, before earning my PhD in organic chemistry in 2016, one of the things that was really special about that is that we did a lot of our work on the computer. And, and yes, there were visuals for sure, and some annoying things that made chemistry quite ex- inaccessible to me. But overall, I was controlling the chemistry that I did. And I found that the hardest parts of doing chemistry for me are, number one, getting data from the visual, very visual world of chemistry that is how we publish papers and do presentations at conferences and that sort of thing into my mind, and then getting my data, my results out to the general public, again, in that very visual manner that they like to present in. So doing the chemistry was never really the difficult thing for me. I could do that in my mind. I, I really understood how, how things work in the, in the chemical sciences, but and in organic chemistry in particular, but I, you know, there were things that that required assistance. Reading papers is a big one. Grading exams is another one. And I really did think that I wanted to teach and had the honor of teaching a few general chemistry classes, uh, freshman chemistry classes while in graduate school. But my goal, let me just back up a little bit. Sorry, Peter, this is a little roundabout. Just to back up a little bit. I, um, you know, my whole goal was to teach students who were just coming to college how to do chemistry. So I wanted to have the class of freshman chemistry students at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning after a long weekend of partying who really didn't want to be there. You know, 90 plus percent of them were there because they had to have a pre had to get a 
you know, chemistry was a prerequisite for what they thought they actually wanted to do. I wanted to inspire a few of those students to actually get excited about chemistry like I did and had the honor of teaching a couple of those classes, like I said. But what I realized is that students don't really speak chemistry. They like to see pretty pictures and video animations and all these different things. And they don't really like to hear what's going on, you know, with the chemical sciences. The other problem was they never read the book. So they never were prepared, even though I gave them exactly what I needed them to do. They never came prepared. And that discouraged me from teaching. That uh, didn't, you know, I had to get a lot of assistance grading. I ended up spending the majority of my time and money, by the way, working with sighted assistants to make beautiful presentations with nice videos and nice color schemes and, you know, little things, animations that would pop in and pop out as the slides were clicked through. And then I'd have to work really hard to memorize these presentations so I could present them coherently, right? And presenting a PowerPoint is no problem, but when you have all these visuals and you have to remember, okay, what's going to fly in now? What's going to zoom out now? You know, what do I need to be talking about? It took a lot. And uh, students still on my evaluation said that I used my voice too much and I didn't use enough visuals. So kind of discouraged me from studying chemistry. And it did take me earning a PhD in chemistry to realize that I didn't want to do study chemistry as my entire career. Uh, so I, I really became an entrepreneur. And that's sort of the next chapter. I still use chemistry most days in the work that I do. I mean, once a chemist, always a chemist. And I, I really enjoy that. But yeah, that's, that's who I am. That's what it all sort of came to. Before we go on, um, Mel, this is partly up to you, of course. I know I've been monopolizing the time, but uh, does anybody have any, uh, and, uh, unless you disagree, Mel, does anybody have uh, what we've heard so far from Hobie? Any raised hands? Melissa Sprouse. Hi. So I'm actually interested in chemistry, like um, a little bit, and I'm more interested in the practical side of it, like doing experiments in the lab and dissecting or looking at the chemicals and all that. So is there a particular branch in chemistry I should pursue or is it all just like lab experiments and paperwork, whatever branch of chemistry it is? Thanks. Well, first of all, thank you for your question. Can you tell me your name again? Melissa. Melissa, and are you uh, are you in high school? I just finished high school. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, um, that's a that's a big accomplishment for sure. You know, if you like the, the dissections and the lab experiments and that sort of thing, I would say more either biochemistry or analytical chemistry might be really interesting to you. I think analytical chemistry is really dealing with a lot of instruments, so it might feel a little bit dry. But biochemistry, where we combine biology with, um, you know, with chemistry, I think might really interest you. Um, organic chemistry is also is also one that you might find fun because it, it deals with a lot of study of life stuff as well. Um, which classes in high school did you really love? So I didn't really have a choice in what classes I took, so I might need to do my last year again if I really want to do chemistry because gotcha. I was mainly given business classes to do because the science ones, like, you know, they didn't know how to make those accessible enough. So I was just put mm-hmm. into all the business classes. Okay. Um, yeah. So you didn't, you didn't get to get to take maybe as much science as you wanted to. I did do chemistry in my 10th grade, but I changed a lot of schools. Got it. So it's kind of all over the place. <laughs> well, I'm going to make sure this entire 
committee, an entire, an entire audience has my contact info, has my email, and I want to be able to help anyone out that, that might have any questions about, about any of this sort of stuff. So don't be a stranger, Melissa. Please reach out. And I am also going to shamelessly promote a program that I'm doing. You'll hear me mention this later as well. Uh, next, not this upcoming week, but the week immediately after, which is a Zoom speaker series for a STEM camp that I'm running for the Lighthouse for the Blind of San Francisco at their camp and retreat up in Napa, California. So we're doing an in-person STEM science, technology, engineering, and math program. But then every afternoon between 7 and 8.30 Eastern or 4 and 5.30 Pacific, we're having a Zoom series that anyone and everyone is welcome to. So Peter, I'd like to send you the information for that if you can get it out to this you know, entire audience. I will happily do that. Send it to me and we'll take care of that. I'm sort of torn. Mel, what do you think? Should we, should we take another question or should we move, move forward? We have more hands. Hi, Sylvia. I actually follow you on Facebook. Um, I, um, I guess I heard about you from the, the blind wine tastings that you were organizing nice. in, um, in California. That is my home state. I now live in Toronto. <laughs> beautiful beautiful but, uh, province as well. well my only question is, what is your favorite big cab from California right now? <laughs> oh, man, that's a great question and a hard one because there are so <laughs> many big cabs right now from California. We'll get into the wine stuff in a minute, but I'm really, oh, okay. Sorry. I'm really enjoying the, uh, the Claret by Francis Ford Coppola. I do a lot of work oh. with them. It's found in a, in a sort of a metal netting, and uh, it's just delicious, and it's very widely distributed up in Canada, too. Yeah, well, there I, I get their diamond collection um, cabs, so yeah, there it is. familiar. Yeah, that's Thanks. great. Where in California are you from, Sylvia? Um, I all over the state. I was born in Fresno. I was raised in the Palm Springs area, and right before I moved to Toronto, I was living in the Bay Area in Google Town. Ah, amazing. <laughs> so while while we're on the subject, uh, Poet, do you want to promote your wine tasting event you're doing with a blind pride? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so. Um, I, I'm really excited to have been connected to Blind Pride through Peter and Mel uh, by way of Anthony Corona. And uh, I agreed to do two wine events with them. Um, so I should tell you a little bit about my sort of jump from chemistry to entrepreneurship and, and how I got involved in that. But we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, to make a long story short, I'm a, I'm a food and beverage sensory guy, and in particular, a wine guy. And um, on Tuesday from 7.30 to 8.45 with Blind Pride, I'm doing a series called From Grape to Glass, all about the winemaking process. How is wine made? How are grapes grown? How are they pruned? And then what happens to grapes once they're harvested and brought to the winery? And then on Friday, a little bit uh, earlier, I believe, I think it's at uh, five or so convention time, I'm... Uh, working with Gabe of Blind Pride to um, really talk about wines. I'll be talking about more the technical side of, the, of two different wines. He'll be talking about the consumer side and we'll, uh, we'll do a bit of a, a tasting and sort of back and forth banter there, which I'm uh, really excited about. Thank you. Um, so I guess this is the moment to talk about how you made the transition from uh, ner nerdy chemist uh, <laughs> academic to to your wine business and your other businesses. Nerdy chemistry to nerdy business. Yeah, nerdy, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, once a nerd, always a nerd. So I'll never lose that. <laughs> absolutely. But, but uh, yeah, you know, 
I realized that teaching chemistry wasn't as accessible as I thought it was going to be. And I pretty much knew from the beginning of, of graduate school that I didn't really want to be a chemistry researcher full time. So the thought of being a tenured professor at a what we call a research one university where you know it's just really hardcore research, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of service, but mostly research, that didn't really appeal to me. I should also say that uh, between 2012 and 2016, while I was in graduate school, I founded a nonprofit called Accessible Science and hosted chemistry camps, six of them in total, for blind and visually impaired students who were interested. And that was a lot of fun for me to, to do that. I didn't expect many of our students to be chemists, but uh, and had become chemists. I selfishly thought it'd be cool if, if some of them did, and some of them, in fact, did. But I was expecting just to do these, you know, I, I had done some some science programs with the National Federation of the Blind. In 2004, I went to their Rocket On Science Academy and actually launched a rocket off of uh, Wallops Island, Virginia's uh, launch pad, which is a NASA launch pad. It was a rocket that we built, me and 11 other blind high school students. So that was really impactful. And I realized that, oh, wait a minute, I'm doing all these neat things, but I see blind people in my community that maybe aren't getting that same access. Let's put something together to give everybody access, you know, all sort of high school and early college students access to, to unique and, and different types of events. So we did that. And at our first chemistry camp in 2011, we had, uh, you know, students from just, just around the, the Northern California area. By the second camp, we had students from Virginia. And by the third camp, we had students from all over the world. And these happened once a year uh, for, for six years, from 2011 to 2016. And uh, that, that really paved the way for me and joint, you know, it was my first business technically. And I really got into business that way. And, um, you know, I think that, that once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, it's sort of something that's always been in my blood, in my veins, this desire to, to run businesses and, and, and come up with really unique, hopefully unique ideas, and then work to build a business around them. A lot of people, when they hear about entrepreneurs, think, oh, that's money and power. And these people are you know, doing, you know, they're all about power, being powerful in business. And to me, it couldn't be further from, from the truth. For me, entrepreneurship is about solving problems in a very real way. And if I can pay the bills at the end of the month, I'm really happy. That, that's great. But my goal with entrepreneurship is to start businesses that honestly solve problems. Now, I realized sort of later in my uh, you know, after getting into wine, that I really have spent my whole life practicing and honing my palate, um, smelling different things, remembering what they smell like. And then when I smell those things in other places, saying, yep, I know where that smell came from. I know exactly what it is. And doing the same thing with flavor as well. And really became a flavor and aroma and texture guy uh, in, in food and drink. And Ironically, at the very beginning of my graduate tenure in 2011, I got a call from Francis Ford Coppola's wine team saying, hey, Hobie, do you want to work with us to innovate a truly blindfolded wine tasting experience? Now, when Francis Ford Coppola, for those of you who don't know him, he's a, a film producer, when his team calls you and asks you to do something, you say yes. And then you hang up and you say, oh, my God, what did I just agree to? Or at least I did. And when that happened to me, I actually, Francis really gave me the reins of the experience and said, go ahead and build us something that's really impactful for our guests. 
So we built a, a truly blindfolded wine experience, and it was actually inspired by an experience that Coppola himself did in Asia under blindfold that he thought was very gimmicky, and he saw the principle. Everything was there in principle, but it was just very gimmicky and not, not as fun as it could have been. And he thought, we can do, do this so much better at the winery. But And the problem with the one that he was doing in Asia is that no blind people let it. So he said, I want to do this at the winery. And I want to have a blind person really lead, lead the experience. So we designed this tasting where basically we, we sat around and we talked about, you know, really how wine is an art form, how wine is subjective, just like other art. And we should learn what we like by practicing and tasting more wines. And then really talking about how you don't need to see to enjoy life. And my, my purpose with this tasting was first and foremost to make the blindfold not the focal point. The blindfold in this experience was merely a way to temporarily remove a sense that most people use who have it to obtain about 85, 90% of the information from their surroundings. And we were really excited about it and did just that. You know, we were able to really create an opportunity, opportunity and an experience for people to understand wine and experience wine in a really new way. And it started as a hospitality only experience for Coppola's wineries in Sonoma County. We were doing one a quarter and it became one a month and one every two weeks and one every week and two a weekend. And it, it started to really, really get popularized. And at that point, the Coppola, near that point, the Coppola sales team picked it up and said, wait a minute, this is really neat. We need to bring this on the road with us. So for years, luckily, I was a computational chemist, as said. So my laptop served as my laboratory as well. And I was able to get on the road. And I actually worked as, as the wine educator of record for the Coppola sales team uh, for several years. I still do a lot of contract work with them uh, to this day. Not, of course, during COVID, but um, doing, doing some work with them. They're undergoing a, a really unique uh, transformation right now because they're merging with a much larger company called Delicato Wines. Uh, and that is public knowledge. So that's been, been an interesting transition. But what, what this work with blindfolds and wine did for me is it taught me about a concept which I call sensory literacy. And that's the ability to take in information from any one of your five senses, process that information, and come up with a logical deduction based on what you take in, right? And I, I love teaching sensory literacy. So I've, I've ended up doing these tasting experiences in a variety of industries and markets around the world, some being wine, some being food, some being spirits, some beer, coffee, tea, olive oil, and vinegar, whatever the case may be. We even do a lot of blindfolded training with folks who it has nothing to do with food and drink, actually put together a whole program to teach empathy to high school students at a fairly local Waldorf education, you know, public Waldorf uh, high school. So that is how I got into wine. I had the honor of working with folks like Thomas Keller at the French Laundry and uh, Barilla Pasta. I do some do some work with Google and their food team as well. Uh, so we have a we have a really good time doing that work. And I um, I really do a lot of sensory strategy consulting. So my latest contract right now is with a firm that is actually making meat out of cell cultures. And we're really dialing in the sensory aspects of that product. We have a few other projects that I really can't talk about, unfortunately, that I'd love to be able to tell you about, but can't. So, so my consulting is really often translating between teams that do a lot of science and that are doing research and development 
and then teams that are doing the sensory. But then we take that one step further because I'm people call me weird because I'm a chemist who loves marketing and understands branding and marketing. So we also help take the R&D that we're familiar with and uh, and help help sales and marketing teams talk about it in a way that makes sense to a wide audience. To that end, I have a sales and uh, we're really a marketing creative studio that I'm a partner at. I don't work too much in the day-to-day operations, but that's that's a fun company called SensePoint. And we're currently starting a project right now, uh, should be out in the by the end of the month, uh, knock on wood here. It's a uh, line, a gourmet line of, uh, of seasonings. Um, we're not with two seasoning blends. And the, the tagline for that brand is elevating happiness. In my work, in all of what I do, whether it's consulting or making spices or whatever, my goal is to just make people's days a little better and to make them a little happier. You know, as I like to say, I... Uh, I don't cure cancer like my fellow uh, PhD chemists maybe went on to do. My goal is just to make Tuesday night a little more of a celebration. And uh, to that end, I'm working on a a premium wine brand in the next three to five years. And much sooner than that, because we just looks like we just received funding for a a beverage company called Blind Truth Beverage, uh, which is going to be ready, high quality, low proof, ready to drink cocktails and cans and bottles. Am I correct? I think you told me uh, that, there's going to be Braille labels on all these products? There, the goal is Braille labels on the spices first. And when we do that, we'll be the first company in the world to Braille label our spices. And uh, yeah, we do plan to label the ready-to-drink cocktails. It's going to be a little bit harder to label cans, but we're working towards that. Yeah. That is very cool. Do we have any uh, hands up? Twan. Twan, I know you. I need to get in touch with you, my friend. How are you doing, buddy? Well, I'm doing great. And I know you, you sent me a yeah, message to my website. Be, I will try to get in touch with you. We got talking about my PhD program after my master's degree, um, getting getting my master's next, next May. And I'm wow. really excited to Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And I would try to kind of get in hold with you. Well, here we are. And I'll be sure to email you. Yeah. And uh, I would love to. I'm thinking about applying to UC Davis and possibly other school as well. And I'd like to ask you some questions about, you know, what are your experiences at Davis and, and you know, so I, I, my advisor right now, come across one advisor that possibly you have, I, I forgot his or her name, but anyway, but, um, but uh, Dr. McCarthy, my advisor, suggested that I talk, talk to you and get to, and, 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 you know, um, talk to Hobie and, I'd and love maybe to help he, you out. Maybe he, maybe he will be good, good guidance for you. No, so I, I'd love to. I'm I, sorry I, I've been so hard to get a hold of. Yeah, so I hope the two of you will connect. But tell me, um, what, 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 is your, what are you getting your master's degree in? Theoretical biochemistry. Well, congratulations. That is so cool. I'm so glad there. Anytime I hear yeah, a yeah, my person. undergrad, My undergrad is physics, and then my, math, my master's in biochemistry. Congratulations. And, I, and I'm thinking of doing some old chem, maybe old chems or... Yeah. Or, or maybe OCHEM or maybe something related to chemistry. You know? Well, that's awesome. I hope the two of you connect. And thank you so much for joining us for this presentation. Who's next? Jean. Hi, this is Jean Marie, Peter and Eugene. Hi, Jean Marie and Eugene. Hobie, we've talked before. I, I want to out Melissa so that everyone on the call can help create this reality for her. What she didn't say to you is she lives in Dubai. And she's wow. our organization. So I want whatever help 
can be sent her way to be sent her way. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's incredible. I didn't know Absolutely. that. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's I don't know how news. she feels about the fact. I just wrote her and I said, I'm going to out you. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you today, Jean? Oh, I'm really good. And I'm looking forward to your coming to our convention. I'm very excited. Thank you yes, very much yeah, for the invitation. Yeah. Hobie is going to the Oregon, uh, Oregon Council of the Blinds Convention I, in October, I think it is. They yeah. invited me to be their banquet speaker, and I said, careful oh, yeah. what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want the science part. <laughs> yes, of course. Thank you so much, Jean. Who's next? Margie. Hi, Co- uh, Hobie. It's Margie. Hobie's a dear friend of mine. Hey, Margie. Hey, from Folsom, California. Absolutely. How are you? I'm great. I'm it's so nice happy to hear to your be voice. Here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be to your voice. And Margie, if you can come up next week to Enchanted Hills, we're doing STEM camp. We'd love to have you as a guest. Well, I, I will talk to Tony about that. You know, I'll do anything to be around you. <laughs> You're too kind. I, I have I have been the I have been one of the privileged person to um to be at two of Hobie's wine tasting that he did for Providers Weekend up yeah. in camp and providers weekend by the way when it happens again it's anybody that works in the field of blindness and I've also had the opportunity <laughs> as a kid uh, an adult kid to help out and be a participant and a helper in one of his science classes up at camp right. and yeah. let me tell you chemistry is not <laughs> something I ever thought of in my life to be any fun at all until I met Hobie <laughs> Um, Thank you, Margie. I just want to take you back to something. And and if you could squeeze it in, it's great. But one thing I remember you saying that, and especially since we have some younger people on here that are still, is how you got in the chemistry. And and I remember, and I won't give any more details, but it had to do with you cooking. It did. Yes. You know what, Margie, you're absolutely right. And thank you for for hearkening me back to that. I um, I have always loved cooking. And I've always been, I've always kind of considered myself an amateur chef. I've always, even from a very young age, loved experimenting with different flavors and aromas and how heat really transforms things. And, you know, when I was eight years old, my parents never liked to purchase their lunch. They wanted to, when they went to work, they wanted to eat healthy and would always make their lunch. So they would hire me to make large pots of soup. And we're talking eight, 10 gallons at a time and then freeze it. And and that's what they would take for lunch. We'd freeze it in one quart containers. And it was a, it was the perfect size for them to take for lunch. So that was my job. And uh, we made some, some really interesting soups and really interesting stuff. And I, I just got into it. And it was like, why, why does something taste, why does an onion taste different if we fully caramelize it, you know, for about 25 minutes, rather than just sauteing it for about five minutes? versus the raw onion. And I said, this is, this is chemistry. So I, I did say that my high school chemistry teacher got me, you know, really was the one to get me excited about chemistry, not to use a chemistry pun by any means, because I'd never do such a thing, but she catalyzed my desire to, to study chemistry. But I think the, the fascination with chemicals and how things interact all really started in the kitchen for me at a very young age. The other thing that, that I've found over the years, and we can talk about, we can nerd out about cooking all day long and, and food. But the other thing that I've found is that salt really enhances flavors. So I'm going to give you a flavor combination that I encourage you all to try 
sometime before the convention's over, take a bowl of vanilla ice cream. Now, let's try to use as good a vanilla ice cream as we can. And then I want you to take about two tablespoons of olive oil and pour it on your ice cream. Why the heck would you mix olive oil with vanilla ice cream? Well, olive oil has some really, I actually wrote a whole chemistry paper on olive oil, so I'm an olive oil nerd. But olive oil has so many interesting compounds, some kind of vegetal and grassy, some a little bit fruity. that just meld themselves in so well with the vanilla creamy flavor of vanilla ice cream. And then I want you to take a bite of that. So mix that up and take a bite of it. And now, though, humor me and take some really, you know, uh, crystalline salt. There's a brand called Maldon's, which is big, flat, wide flakes. And put about a half a teaspoon or more, as much as you dare, of salt on that bowl of ice cream with olive oil. And then stir it all up and taste it again. And notice the difference that salt has on bringing flavor out. So Margie, you asked a question and you got a really round, random roundabout answer. I'm sorry about that. I hope that's okay with you, but there it is. You're awesome. Both of you are awesome. Thank you, Margie. <laughs> uh, it, I, I'd never thought of that. Ice cream with olive oil uh, and, and, and salt. You just, to, to, to continue the chemistry image, you precipitated a, a new idea. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, one of the things really quickly, Peter, one of the things... I don't know if Margie was here at, was at Enchanted Hills Camp for my liquid nitrogen ice cream. But one of the things that we do there is, is you literally take cream and sugar and vanilla. And mine has a whole bunch of salt, more than you'd ever think of putting in there. And, and you mix that up into what's called a batter. And then you literally, you know, using either a mixer, an electric mixer, or if you really want to get down and dirty and you want to work out your arm, a, a hand whisk to whisk this all together as you add liquid nitrogen, which has a, a temperature of about negative 196 uh, Celsius, which is about negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit, which just freezes everything together. That's beyond my level of comprehension, but I, I, I it sounds well, Peter, when we meet in person, we'll be That's sure right. to make some liquid nitrogen ice a- cream. Absolutely. Any other hands raised? Kevin. Hey, Hobie, it's Kevin from California. I've been to one of your wine tasting that um, when I used to work at Google, it's like probably, I want to say 2017 or something. Absolutely. Yeah. A few, few years For ago now. week. Yes, exactly. Um, that was a lot of fun. You've um, been to some other wine tasting it be, um, before and after then, but that, definitely that's one of the more memorable ones, just how you really, I mean go through the whole process and kind of are really descriptive and um, kind of provide just kind of great analogies to really allow one to understand the whole process and what one's supposed to be experiencing. So, Well, thank you. And I, I hope you come on by our BPI events. We're doing two of them. Who's next? Kyle. Hi, Hobie. Kyle, how are Aloha. you? Aloha. Good to hear you know, your voice. Oh my gosh, you too. An hour and 15 minutes is not enough. No, it's not. It is not enough. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, um, this man is so humble and so intelligent. I, I don't think he's mentioned it yet. But, yeah, no, honestly, did you guys know in 2012, President Barack Obama, he um, named <laughs> Hobie the, a champion of change? You're outing me. <laughs> I am outing you one more, one more. In 2016, Hobie was named 
one of Forbes, uh, for, you know, the, the magazine Forbes Media's 30 under 30 in the food and drink category. Such a humble yes. man. But I, I got to tell you, Hobie, you made such an impression on my students here in Hawaii. We cannot oh. wait till we can get you on again. But the three things that I'll never, ever forget, and not anyone on this call should ever forget, is that don't compare yourself to others. It's true. Believe in yourself. And don't be afraid to fail. Thank you, Hobie. <laughs> Thank you so Kyle. much. You're so kind. That's, Thank that's you. That's very, very nice. It's uh, such an honor to see you here today, Kyle. You too. We miss you. Thank <laughs> you, Kyle. You too. You're welcome. You're- Anybody else? Yes, we have Ryan. This is Ryan Thomas. It's been a long time since Rocket On. Ryan! <laughs> it's been a long time. So Hobie and I went to uh, science camp when we were both in high school. But Hobie, I just wanted to say that I went into teaching math and then worked for a while as an ecologist. And now I'm also in business. But um, it'd be great to I'll reach out to you after the convention. Can't wait. Talk about, you know, teaching uh, math and science specifically to blind students. I think that's awesome that you pursued that some. Oh, I'd love to chat with you, Ryan. What, what, uh, what quickly, what type of business are you in? I'm the C- uh, CFO now for a blindness rehabilitation center. So hey, congratulations. That's so cool. So good to hear your voice. It's good to hear you too. Long. Yeah. Glad you're doing well. Congratulations, doing Kevin. Well. That's, that, that's, that's, that's great. That really is great. Thank you so much for, for coming on. So Hobie, um, in the last, uh, I would say two or three minutes we have left, what have what haven't you said that you would like to say? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I I've got to say that I feel like everything in life is doable and possible if you have the right mindset. I've really decided that everything we do and everything we push ourselves to do is about mindset. And we can decide whether we want to do something or whether we don't want to do it. It's all about how we think about it. And, you know, I think if we just think about life as a series, and this is one thing that, that, that we talked about in Kyle's session uh, with her, her students in Hawaii, is that if you can think about life as a series of challenges, and we just have to work our best to overcome them, anything is possible. And with a positive mindset, where you don't say, Oh, that that's I, I can't do that. That's too uh, that's too hard for me. Or oh, and I'll never be that good. If we never allow ourselves to say that, and we just reach for the stars in everything we do, we literally can do whatever it is we want to do. The world is your oyster. You can get out there and do whatever you want if you take challenges. So my I wrote an article. Uh, that I call five mindsets to mindsets to overcome challenges and raise expectations. If we don't challenge ourselves and push a lo- push ourselves a little bit, we won't necessarily have high expectations of ourselves. So I think that the things that we need to do, so importantly, Kyle Kyle said them, but we need to believe in ourselves. Right? Just do believe anything that if you think you can do it and you believe in your ability, you'll be able to do it. It's all the, the biggest thing holding any of us back is our own mind. Next is don't compare yourself to other people. If you think that you're worse than other people or rather if other people perform higher than you do, you're never going to get past that. You're always going to be worried about, oh, I wish I was as good as them. 
And if you always think you're better than other people, you're going to be cocky. And that's not funny either. Nobody wants that. So just, just be yourself. Compete against yourself. You know, then we don't have to worry about this. Oh, I'm a blind person living in a sighted world. How hard is this? You know, it's not about that. It's about we're living in our world. Yeah, we live in a world that mostly has sighted people in it. So we definitely are going to have to work hard. But you are just trying to be the best you you can possibly be with everything you do. Be consistent. So if you're gonna if you're gonna try something, you got to be consistent, which means that you got to pick something to do that you like, right? If you decide that you're gonna lose weight by running and you hate running, it's gonna be hard to be consistent in that. So think of things that you like to do, things that someone might call work that to you for whatever reason don't necessarily feel like work. Don't be afraid to fail. That one's pretty self-explanatory. And perhaps most important to me is take anything that feels like a big challenge and break it up into a bunch of little challenges. When I was flying to Budapest, Hungary by myself, which was my first international trip independently for work, it's like, my gosh, I was sitting in my house with my suitcase packed, thinking, how the heck am I going to find myself in this random hotel down some side street in Budapest in less than 24 hours? I got myself overwhelmed. How am I going to do that? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I started to sweat. I started to worry. And I said, you know what? Small challenges. First step is getting to the airport or bus. Now we get off that bus and we're at the airport. Check in, go through security, get to the gate, sit down on the airplane. These are small challenges, right? Some of them maybe that would be small felt a little bit not so small, like you know, trying to take public transportation in Budapest, Hungary, where I didn't speak the language to get to the hotel, that was hard. But it was, I was prepared for it. And I already felt good about what I'd done because I'd accomplished all these little sub-challenges. So Kyle, had you not said what you said, I probably wouldn't have gone off on this diatribe. So thank you for that. Let's do some more hand raising. Betsy Dahl. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a math uh, teacher uh, and uh, my experience is on this uh, this month's uh, well, actually last month's this past Jaws podcast. I would love to contact Ryan. I don't know his email or how to get him, and uh, also Dr. Wedler uh, and be in conversation. It would be lovely. Thank you. This is just fascinating, and I'm just thrilled at this whole program. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for the comment and. I'll be sure to, Peter will send out my email and, and email to everyone. And I want to oh. be in touch with you all. The best I can do is I'll send it to the, the various places I know of, of various lists and hope that it will get circulated. That's the best I can do. Um, if, cause I, we can't give emails on, on these programs. For oh, obvious reasons. You all can get a hold of me really simply. I'm just going to tell oh, yeah. everybody my email address. Yeah. Please. Okay. Uh, can you do, is, is that okay? Uh, no, I, I'm sorry. I cannot allow that. Oh. No. What is your what is your website? Get a hold of me. There's a big contact us button at hobiewedler.com. You can you can give your okay, you can give your website. Yep. That's fine. So, so Hobie at hobiewedler.com. Yes. Yeah, so go to your website, uh his website, because there H-O- is a contact. Go ahead. H-O-B-Y-W-E-D-L-E-R.com. And if you're feeling like a detective, my email address might be really, really similar to that. Yes. I think that's I think that's all we need to say about that. Peter, I'm going to stop you. I've got a question. For oh, you. please. Awesome. No, I'm sorry. I feel like I've been hogging the. the uh, it's your show, Hobie. Yeah. <laughs> no, ho- uh, by all means, uh, uh, Mel, go ahead. So Hobie, one of the things you talked about, right, was that you were teaching 
how did you convince HR that it should be that they should be hiring you besides having a degree? What what made you sell yourself to them in such an unusual um, field a, as far really, as chemistry being taught? That's a really good question, and I. I wish I had a better answer for it, Mel. I was um, I was in graduate school anyway, and they needed teachers. And I said, "Hey, I can do this." And they said, "Okay, great. That's that sounds good." Um, you know, I, I was able to convince HR after I finished with graduate school to have me teach another few courses. And the way that I did that is, I just said, "Look, I've I've done my degree. Here are my lecture materials." Basically, it's so, I I wish I wasn't saying this, but it's showing how we are better than any of our competition by having our stuff together, giving a mock lecture, showing them a a quarter's worth or semester's worth of of lecture notes and slides and saying, this is how I will present this stuff. It's done. And frankly, being willing to say to them, hey, we, um, you know, I won't. I won't cause you problems. I'm not going to demand anything that's unreasonable. And let's just, let's just work as a team. Um, I've had less, less fortunate experiences with HR departments for sure, where they just don't understand and they see hiring a blind person as a liability. And that's really hard. It's really hard on the psyche. It's not a perfect world. I just think we have to put our best foot forward in any, in any case. And just be totally reasonable. Like, hey, I want to work with you to make this work for both of us rather than here's my list of demands. How are you going to accommodate me? It's all about being adaptable, being flexible, and just being a good-natured, nice person that they don't mind working with. Did that answer your question sufficiently? We have another hand. This is Carrie Muth. Hi. I'm the Oregon affiliate president, so, you know, I'm pretty excited about October. So so I'm wondering, what has been your biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in your life? Getting a PhD in chemistry was really hard. I had to work many more hours than my sighted peers. I was putting in 90 to 110 hour weeks every week for five years, and that, that wore me out big time. I'll say a very close second, Carrie, is hanging your own shingle as a contractor and mm-hmm. convincing people that, yeah, I, I will do the, I'm the right person for the job. Yes, I can't see. And I might need a little assistance figuring out where the front entrance of your office building is. But that doesn't mean that I'm any different than any other consultant. And it's all about just proving yourself to people. You know, it's hard, but it's just true. I mean, yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Let's face it. It is hard. And I, I have one, one other question. So what can you see as one of the biggest benefits in your life to being blind? Oh my gosh. There's so many. <laughs> I would so rather be blind than sighted because I have such <laughs> a different perspective of the world around me. I, I listen to things. I it's, it's being able to sense the world. And when people talk to me, it's being able to listen to them instead of hear them because I'm not distracted by eyesight. Eyesight is so incredibly distracting. That's what I found with my sighted friends. You know, we'll be standing somewhere doing something. And if they're looking at something, they're totally distracted. They can't focus on a conversation. And I just think life is so much richer as a blind person. 
Thank you. I agree. That's a really interesting comment. We do view the world differently, or at least we tend to view the world differently. And um, if people, uh, we can we can give some really unique perspectives if people are, are able to hear us. To me, blindness literally is just, we're, we are the same people as everyone around us. We just have a little bit of a lack of efficiency because we can't use our eyes, which are basically tools to make certain things more efficient. That's all it is. Thank you, Carrie. Do we have any other hands raised? Yeah, we do. Jean okay. Marie, please go ahead. Hello again. Oh, please tell me, how did you get to the hotel in Budapest? That's been my big, I tell the story of going to South Africa by myself and going through the airport and stuff. And I, but they spoke English. How did you do it? I found people who spoke enough English and that I was able to ask which, uh, which bus line to take. And when I got to the, honestly, when I got to the bus station closest to my hotel, I grabbed an Uber. This is a funny wow. thing. This is a really funny thing with Uber. I think it's revolutionized our ability to get around independently. Um, the, yeah. the GPS systems are accurate enough that, you know, now if they call me and say, where are you? in a completely different language, then I'm hosed. But if you can, I feel like nine times out of eight, eight or nine times out of 10, you know, you can, you can call an Uber if you're on a normal thoroughfare and they'll find you pretty easily. And that's exactly what happened. Are you a cane traveler? I am. Yeah. Ah. Are you a cane traveler? Oh yeah. (laughs) I've had dogs and I'm debating about the whole thing. It's it's like having a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Thank you, Jean. <laughs> Jean that, that Marie. Is, Jean Marie. Uh, uh, it is a fascinating story. I, you know, I'm not sure I could envision myself doing what you did and, and going to Budapest. You know, on, uh, by yourself. I guess. A, Anytime you want to, you want to jump on an airplane with me and try it out, Peter. You, uh, we'll 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 do, do it. it. We'll do it. Any other hands raised? Yes, Josh Pearson. Please go ahead. Hi, Hobie. Uh, really appreciate you sharing your your story and your experiences. Um, just a, uh, two questions for you. Well, one one is a question. Uh, the second is kind of an ask related to that question. So, um, in terms of STEM uh, as a career field, what advice would you give? Uh, to both universities and employers in terms of increasing the accessibility of STEM. And the ask for that is I'm working on a project to do just that piece of things. I would love to have you involved as a consultant. Oh, I'd love to. So first of all, it's a resounding yes on the, on the ask. I'd love to work with you, Josh, and get to know, get to know you a little bit better. As, as for the first part of your question, I think it's all about awareness. I think it's all about telling stories and saying, hey, this is doable. This person did X, Y, and Z in STEM. You know, this is not foreign. People are doing this stuff all the time. You might just not see it because you're not looking for it and you're not surrounded by it. So I I think case studies are the best way to show employers this really is possible. One of the things that I'm that I'm really getting worried about, Josh, and I'll just be completely transparent with you, is how the ADA is becoming a place for in, in many ways for people to use inappropriately and, and sue employers for not accommodating certain things, oftentimes when the people uh, filing the suits don't even have you know legitimate disabilities. People are getting really scared of the term reasonable accommodation. And what does that mean? And what's this person going to ask for? 
And I've seen a lot of people not get jobs because of that. They, of course, wouldn't say that to their face, but it is a worry of mine. And I think that we need to increase right now. We're, you know, in this whole diversity and inclusion movement that started mostly in the latter half of 2020, I think we're doing a really good job of bringing the opportunities and possibilities uh, forth for uh, a variety of ethnicities and demographics. And I think that we still need to work a little more on bringing people with disabilities to the forefront and, and showing what we can do. Let me add to that, if it's of any value, uh, and, and that is we, we, we should be asking the employers who have diversity and inclusion programs, what are you doing now to bring up front people from other minority groups? What are the kinds of things you are doing and how can you tailor those programs to include people with disabilities? I find that approach to be really effective because they, they think they don't know, but they know, they know more than they, than they think they know. And getting, oh, that's a really smart move, Peter, and getting them to, getting them to really dig down and, and think pretty deeply about what they do know. Right, exactly. Because that, you can build sure. on that. You can build any, I think we have time for one more question. Are there any hands raised? Or Mel, if you have anything or that, Mel? You wanna, that you want to add, I, I want to make sure you have this <laughs> opportunity. I, 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 <laughs> I'll talk to Peter later. Yeah, I'm sure you will. <laughs> I'm sure you um, will. Sorry. We have one more hand, Annie Davis. So you may have covered this um, in an earlier time. So I, I was a little late, but I wanted to know as far as when you traveled to Budapest, whether it was for business or pleasure, who, like, how much convincing did you have to do to the airport staff or the hotel staff that you can do this independently? I just said, I'm doing it. I'm going to pay you money. You better let me do it. And they were fine with it. Yeah. Um, hey, 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 Mel, you, I, I want you to be able to ask your question here. That's okay. So um, just, just going off the French laundry and going off of such high levels of, I mean, just greatness. What influence did that have? in your, and I'm going to apologize for messing this up, but the sensory work that you're doing. It was really amazing to get to work with, with Thomas Keller. Um, he's a, he's a really bright chef and, um, and has a lot of insight into, into flavor and just, you know, these, these people are artists and getting to sit with artists of their craft that have similar interests to you is just really powerful. And it, it, it just makes you think about how you do things, you know? And on that note, I think we really are running short have, on time. Yes, we are um, at our time. So, can, uh, Mel, uh, could you please read the closing CEU uh, thing, please? Absolutely. So the closing CEU code is 65870. And once and again, it's 65870. Thank you so much, Hobie, for being this. This has been wonderful fun.